Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, August 4th, 2023. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly for news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me again today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. In Arkansas, Freedom to Read advocates have a court victory to celebrate. Just as we were expecting, a federal judge delivered a really highly anticipated ruling last weekend. On July 29th, it found that two key provisions of a recently passed Arkansas state law that would have exposed librarians and booksellers to criminal liability for making allegedly inappropriate or or harmful books accessible to minors in the state were likely to be found unconstitutional, and we got a preliminary injunction blocking them from going into effect. Uh, The ruling means that these two provisions, the rest of the law will go, it did go into effect on August 1st, I should say, but these two key provisions were knocked out, and it left librarians and booksellers in the state breathing a sigh of relief that they're not facing jail time for making these allegedly inappropriate books available. And it's yet another example how so many of these new book banning laws or drag laws, et cetera, are hitting the wall in court, even though they're sailing through state legislatures. Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders signed Act 372 concerning libraries and obscene materials made available to minors on March 30th, Andrew. Supporters say the law is needed to keep allegedly pornographic material away from children. Critics counter it will justify banning books such as those about the LGBTQ plus community. What did the judge find? Well, I think it's fair to say that the judge had no problem seeing this law for what it is, which is at bottom an unconstitutional restraint on speech and the freedom to read. And it really was not a close decision at all. Uh, In a lengthy opinion and order, Judge Timothy L. Brooks concluded that portions of the law are too vague to be understood and implemented effectively, and that if enacted, the law would permit, if not encourage, library committees and local governmental bodies to make censorship decisions based on content or viewpoint, which would violate the First Amendment. Those lines I took right from the decision. Now, specifically, the suit challenged two of the law's six provisions. They are an availability clause that sought to regulate the accessibility of materials deemed to be harmful to minors, and also this sweeping new challenge procedure, which would have empowered literally any person to challenge the appropriateness of materials in a library's collection. But crucially, This law also removes an existing exemption from prosecution provision for librarians and educators. And that provision, that revision, I should say, was not challenged. And so it's actually now in effect. But here's the thing. Without the other two challenged provisions that were knocked down, you know, having the exemption from prosecution removed is not nearly as threatening because to be prosecuted, a librarian or teacher would have to be guilty of distributing actually obscene or pornographic materials. Actually, in fact, according to the law, they have to be legally obscene materials. And, you know, any librarian or educator will tell you that they just don't do that. There's not porn in libraries, despite what some people might say. There's not obscene material by the legal standard in libraries either, despite what people say, at least not in school libraries. And, you know, that's just, you know, not going to be an issue So librarians are not going to be going to jail without the finding of actually legitimately distributing obscene materials. 
But you have to look at it this way, too. This is how the law was sort of intended to work, right? It was designed, the law, all of its parts were designed to create this vague standard of inappropriateness and then to be able to threaten people with jail for offering these inappropriate materials. The net effect of that, of course, being that librarians and teachers would self-censor to avoid any risk of jail. And that's where this ruling is really interesting because Brooks had, like I said, no problem seeing through that and understanding what was really going on here. In fact, in one key passage, he even suggested that the law's fatally vague provisions were intentional because by keeping the pivotal terms vague here, that would give the state greater flexibility to assess book challenges whichever way they wanted to, rather than, as Brooks writes, how the Constitution dictates. And and what can really only be seen as I read it anyway, as a strong rebuke to legislators. Brooks prefaced the entire decision, this 49-page decision to issue a preliminary injunction, with a quote from Fahrenheit 451 author Ray Bradbury. Brooks quoted, there is more than one way to burn a book, and the world is full of people running around with lit matches. I don't know. It's hard not to read that. Coming in the first line of this decision as the judge saying, look, I see clearly what's going on here. Your own PW report, Andrew, noted that Judge Brooks included in his ruling a defense of librarians. Yeah, I've been getting a lot of email about this, too. People are really happy. This it's a really well-written loss, uh, excuse me, decision. And I would urge people you can read it. It's on the PW site. If you want to click and go check it out, it's worth the read, especially for this middle passage that the judge included that really defended the work of libraries and the freedom to read. Uh, It was heartening to see the court cite not only an array of settled case law uh, and to very easily find the law to be constitutionally unsound, but it was really better even for me to see the court openly question why the state, with nothing in the record really to back it up except grievance, was suddenly so interested in jailing librarians or going after threatening librarians with jail. And so he took the chance to offer this really eloquent defense of libraries and librarians. And I'll read you a quote here that I especially liked. He said, he wrote that the vocation of a librarian requires a commitment to freedom to speech and the celebration of diverse viewpoints, unlike that found in any other profession. And he added that the librarian's only enemy is the censor who judges contrary opinions to be dangerous, immoral, or wrong. And Brooks also dispatched with something, something that we've seen rise up in other states too, which is this attempt to portray libraries and school libraries and schools even as sort of like arms of the state. And Brooks wrote that, you know, by virtue of its mission to provide the citizenry with a wide array of information, viewpoints, and content, the public library is decidedly not the state's creature, he wrote. It is the people's. In Texas, a federal lawsuit brought by a coalition of booksellers, publishing industry trade associations, and advocacy groups to strike down a controversial new book banning law is already moving along, and with good reason. That law is set to take effect September 1st. Yeah, wasting no time, the judge in the Texas case has set an August 18th hearing on a motion for a preliminary injunction, though I believe a temporary restraining order might also be in the mix. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, anyway, we're looking for ways to, the, the plaintiffs are looking for ways to keep that state law in Texas from taking effect on September 1, which is right around the corner, of course, because let's be clear, as the lawsuit states, 
there is simply no way any book vendor, anyone in Texas who has to rate all of these books for sale in public libraries is going to be ready for that law to take effect by September 1st. As we discussed last week, the law in Texas requires books to be rated according to sexual content. And that's going to be a really tough haul, uh, which is not to presume, of course, that the court is going to rule to strike the law down. Right. That court could certainly uphold this law as well. Though in talking with people this week, it's really hard for me to see, especially in the wake of the decision in Arkansas, how the Texas law stands. But to say the least, we're looking at a pretty busy time in the courts as summer winds down and the kids get ready to head back to their schools and libraries, hopefully with plenty of diverse books for them. You also reported this week, Andrew, that there may soon be movement in the judgment phase of the Internet Archive's copyright infringement case after numerous delays. Yeah, so it's been, what, more than four months now since a federal judge found the Internet Archive liable for copyright infringement for its program to scan and lend library books. And since the verdict, the parties, per the court's order, have been conferring over what would be an appropriate procedure to determine a judgment in this case. And after numerous extensions through the spring and the summer, Judge John G. Kodal, who's overseeing the case, seems to have run out of patience. In a July 28th order, Kodal gave the parties until August 11th to deliver their recommendations, but he added no more extensions. So, guys, no more extensions. (laughs) In their last request for an extension, the parties reported that they were, quote, very close to finalizing the terms of the consent judgment that was, of course, subject to appeal. And they said they expected to be able to submit the proposal in a week or so. Whether they do or not, we'll see. But it sure seems like whatever happens in the coming days, we're still going to be a ways away from this case being ultimately resolved because the Internet Archive has vowed to appeal. Now, as a reminder... The publishers have asked for damages and injunctive relief, including the destruction of potentially infringing scans held by the Internet Archive. And lawyers for the Internet Archive have actually argued that statutory damages should be remitted per Section 504 of the Copyright Act, which does offer some relief where the infringer is a nonprofit educational institution or a library or an archive if the infringers believed or had, quote, reasonable grounds for believing that Uh, its use of the work was fair use. Finally, Andrew, one more court case, and the news here comes as a small surprise. A New York judge has suggested that a previously dismissed consumer class action lawsuit accusing Amazon of monopolizing the e-book market should be allowed to proceed. That's right. For a second time in two years, a magistrate judge in New York has recommended that this consumer class action lawsuit that accused the big five publishers of colluding with Amazon, yes, colluding with Amazon to fix ebook prices should be dismissed. But the surprise, as you know, is that while the judge recommended once again tossing the case against the publishers, this time the court found that a monopolization claim against Amazon in the ebook market should proceed. Uh, in the 59 page report, which you can read about on the PW site, Magistrate Judge Valerie Figueredo found sufficient facts at this, the pleading stage, which is a very low bar, we should add, to plausibly allege that Amazon's conduct has allowed it to charge super competitive commission fees, leading to reduced competition in the ebook platforms transaction market and higher ebook prices for consumers. Now, our listeners may recall that this case is two years old now, right? It was first filed in more than two years old, January 14th, 2021. 
And it was led by Hagen's Berman, which was the firm that first sued Apple and the big five major publishers for it was big six, I think, at the time uh, for colluding to fix ebook prices. Uh, this back in 2011. The first iteration of this lawsuit, the one filed in 2021, alleged that Hachette, HarperCollins, Macmillan, Penguin Random House, and Simon & Schuster were all co-conspirators in a sort of hub-and-spoke scheme with Amazon to you know, suppress retail price competition and therefore keep ebook prices artificially high. That case was initially met with a lot of head-scratching. It was implausible, nonsensical for anyone to think that the publishers who had just colluded with Apple to blunt Amazon's market power, alleged monopoly power even, in 2010, that they were now actually colluding with Amazon to help make Amazon a monopolist. Just, you know, up is down, black is white. No one could believe that this could be the case. And indeed, ends up that there is really no evidence to suggest there is, is any such conspiracy. So it looks like the publishers are going to be off the hook here in this case once and for all. On the other hand, Amazon, which also we should point out happens to be facing more and more antitrust scrutiny from the government, is still going to be on the hook, apparently. The suit says that Amazon has used its market power to coerce ebook publishers into these contractual provisions that foreclose competition, things like MFNs and price parity clauses, uh, and that this ultimately harms consumers by keeping ebook prices artificially high. What this sort of ignores is that the publishers also want ebook prices to stay high, but you know, that's another matter. Now, in his defense, Amazon insists that all these agreements, the MFNs and the other contract terms are standard, uh, that they're not inherently anti-competitive, and that there's no evidence that the company's conduct really had the effect of raising their commissions and profits to, quote, anti-competitive levels. But the judge ruled that those are not questions to be resolved at the pleading stage, and the judge noted that they've certainly alleged enough of a case for this to move on to the next phase. So what happens now is that this report and recommendation from the magistrate judge goes to the district court for consideration, but it's expected that that judge, Gregory Woods, is going to adopt it. So more than two years later, we have a ball game. Uh, and while I've never believed that publishers actually colluded to make Amazon a monopolist, that Amazon has a monopoly position in the ebook market, well, you know, I'm kind of interested to see how that one goes. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on Velocity of Content, 36 months after the pandemic began and George Floyd's murder by Minneapolis police officers, how have we changed? In publishing especially, what is different about our jobs, our professional relationships, and our attitudes? That question is the challenge presented by Deandra Roberts, the Senior Publishing Coordinator for the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Deandra Roberts is the DEIA Associate Editor and a chef for the Scholarly Kitchen blog published by SSP, the Society of Scholarly Publishing. She tells me why speaking out has sometimes made her vulnerable. I'm not going to say it was easy and everything we wanted went the way we wanted to go or it didn't take work because for some part, to say it as it is, when a group of black people start to organise, it immediately becomes considered political, even if we just wanted to be able to do peer support with each other and we were not trying to riot or anything. But naturally, somehow, a group of black people is a political thing. 
you know, I believe in what I stand for and I think that we should all be treated well and with the same expression. And if me saying anything I've said changes it for the person behind me, then yeah, I'm going to keep doing it. Challenging racism in scholarly publishing. Next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening.